Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Ducrado. The Game Changers podcast aims not only to spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers and true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Christine Core is the CEO, co-founder and master coach or people coach. What's people coach? Well, it's a business that's based on Christine's belief that a business and people can only be successful when their people are successful. What better person for us to be talking to about the human-centered agency of thriving in our world. We're really interested in Christine and the way in which she's building the future and helping other people to build the future. I'm really excited, Adriano. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil, and uh, and I hope you've had a wonderfully enjoyable weekend there in Sydney. How's that harbour faring with us at the moment? Uh, look, the harbour is still there, um, you know, and it's and it's been lovely and sunny. I understand it's been a little chillier down in Melbourne. Over the weekend. Well, yes, we've had some very um, uh, Arctic-type weather over the weekend. But today, the sun is out, including the sun out in beautiful, glorious sunshine here. But let's get to our wonderful guest, Christine. Christine, it's wonderful <laughs> to have you with us today. We're really excited that you're joining us in Series 4 around our theme, Are You Thriving in Your World? And I'm going to get straight to the very first question. And this is a question that we actually ask all of our Game Changer guests. And that is, tell us a little bit about your story, how you got to where you are today. Uh, I've gotten to where I've gotten to today through good luck, accident, and pure pig-headedness, I think. Um, I started my career, well, I've started my life, you can't see me, um, what they say, I'm Chinese, so you can't see that through my accent. I'm obviously born in Australia, so I'm first generation. I've got quite a... Um, quite Chinese actually in many ways, even though I don't sound it. So I started my life thinking that I should be a doctor or a lawyer or accountant or teacher. Um, didn't get into some of those courses, couldn't see myself in doing other things um, in that realm and just fell into a marketing role. Uh, and from there, really I've progressed. I'm now in my third career. So I've, I've been a marketer in some amazing organisations, I started my own recruitment business 20 years ago and about two years ago, I started People Coach. So at the ripe old age of 50, I'm in HR tech and moving, and I'm really already quite clear about what I want to do next. And I really think I got here because, um, well, I read this great quote about what an entrepreneur is and they said an entrepreneur is someone who is too stupid to know that they can't do it. And I think that that is me. You know, I, I was told at 50, you can't open it. You can't start a tech business. You're not 30. You're not male. You're not white. You don't know anything about tech. And uh, here I am. So what, what I'm hearing you share with us is that there's been some very uh, strong countercultural aspirations uh, along this particular journey. What, what do you think motivated you to break through that expectation that you were going to be these other things? Because it mightn't have been just what you aspired to, but I'm sure that was the pressure placed upon you from your cultural background. What motivated you to, to break through that and start up these businesses and, and go down a completely different path? 
Look, that's a really interesting question. And I think the answer, the person that put, I suppose, the most pressure on me to, to conform was actually my father. You know, so for security, for ego, for all sorts of different things, he wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or, or do something safe that I could feed the family. Um, but at the same time, he was an entrepreneur in his own right. And so I actually had the pull and push of him at one point saying, doing things like, no, 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 you must study and become an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. At the next point, I could see him exploring different things. And I think he started and unfortunately failed at about five different businesses. So I saw that. And I guess the other thing he taught me to be is brave. He was a man that was a supporter of feminists and women and he did not, he believed in me completely and he pushed me and sometimes too hard. But out of that, I saw that I actually could do anything that I wanted to do if I worked hard enough. Christine, it's, it's um, the influence of, of fathers and mothers is, is really quite profound, I think, when we start thinking about what people do and why they do it. This is a conversation that uh, today, all three of us are the, are the children of immigrants to Australia. Uh, and if I look at your background, you've very modestly missed out all the, the sort of major things that you've done. But, you know, you've not only on your third career, not only are you running your own business, it's a top 50 startup business, according to APAC business magazine you work with organizations like amp honeywell pfizer universities local councils you're a director of the hunger projects national board and we'll come to that a little later you're an advisory council member for the future of work there's a lot in there i'm interested in two things that help us to think about how we build the future because today's theme is as we said you know building the future the first theme is that of giving and the second is the is is the response to a sense of duty how have those two things shaped your sense of what you should be doing in the world? I guess I've always been brought up in a family of giving, but not necessarily to people outside of my family. So within the Chinese family, you're always giving. So my parents were both the first children of both their families to come to Australia. And they were both required, obligated, expected to return return the money back because we were they were a lot more although they were struggling students and struggling parents and immigrants they actually were more wealthy than a lot of their siblings and you know from a very young age I always saw that my parents were giving money uh, my brother and I actually in high school or maybe it was start of university started to support our cousins overseas so and we always had a household of people of cousins and aunties and uncles that my parents had sponsored over and so I guess that generosity that sense of community that sense of family is more than four people in a house was always there and then as I grew up um, I realized that my family and my community is much more than even you know my blood relations it's broader than that particularly in the sphere of women I guess, and, you know, my obligation to assist women to be more than they think that they can be. And, you know, I've had great opportunities and I want to share some of that with those women around me and people more generally, obviously, but it started with women and then it's gotten broader. There it is. So talk to me about the interaction between giving and duty and how do you respond to that sort of sense of obligation that you have within you and yet find your own way to do your own thing at the same time 
I've given up doing anything because I feel like I have to, apart from doing the dishes, I've got to say. Right? <laughs> but apart from that, I've given that up. You know, I do what I feel I want to do. I'm very comfortable in saying no. I have a lot on. As you said, I've got two businesses, two sons, only one husband. Um, I've got, I'm on three boards. So I have a lot to do. And I've also got to look after myself. You know, I'm over 50 now. I've got, you know, it's harder to lose those kilos. So I've got to make sure that I only do what I choose to do and I refuse to do things only out of obligation or duty. And congratulations for getting to that fantastic age of 50. There are at least two of us in the conversation who reached it. <laughs> Young Adriana will get there shortly if he behaves himself. I'm interested in how you made that decision to go from doing what you felt you ought to doing what you felt you wanted to do. Now, a lot of the conversations we're having with entrepreneurs, it's there, there, are, there are points in their lives where they make a decision to do something and that, that decision itself is, an, is almost an outlier decision. It's, it's an act of courage to turn around and go, actually, I'm going to do this rather than that. Can you remember that, that, that point in time? I've done it a few times and I've got to say each time that I've made the moves forward, I've felt that I've been at my lowest point. Mm. So in my first business, but prior to that, I was with a partner for 10 years. I was, you know, earning a lot of money for a young-ish person. I, you know, had a company car. I had a big office. I literally had the 1980s, you know, couch in my office people to make me a cup of tea, company car, etc. And I was in a partnership with a with a um, my boyfriend or my partner for 10 years. And, you know, what I wanted to do was put some pressure back on him because he was a struggling artist. He never had to take a, accountability of that. I was miserable. I wanted to have children. And I know it sounds so weird. I want to have children. And so what I decided to do was quit my job and start a business to put the pressure back on him so that he would have to man up and he would have to support us and he would have to, you know, take the role of the primary breadwinner because I always had. Best thing and worst thing that happened after year we split up because he couldn't man up. And, you know, then I met my, my husband now who is, you know, the love of my life and I wouldn't be here without him um, and the support that he gives me. So that was the first one that moved me from a very safe employee situation into my own business. The other thing is that this partner did say to me was, Chris, you need to be in your own business because you hate listening to other people. So if you're going to make mistakes <laughs> and fix them, you might as well fix your own. So that's what I did. That was my first business. That was a business called Market Partners. The second time that I made a huge change in my life, again, was a point of misery. I was in a business uh, we had expanded the business to Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. We had, you know, 30 odd employees. I had four shareholders. We had, you know, all these people and I was miserable in this partnership. And anyone that's been in a partnership, uh, it's a business, like, it's like a bad marriage, right? When you're unhappy in your partnership, it's like a bad marriage, but worse. And I, I had four people. It was just horrific. And so what I did was, I got very miserable once again, and I ran away this time to Uganda with the Hunger Project. And I do remember this, and, and so clearly on that day, I was literally sitting at this desk. I was working away. My husband was behind me. Uh, he was doing the dishes. It was 9.30 at night. A thing popped up from Business Chicks saying, come to Uganda with the Hunger Project. 
And I remember turning around and saying, I want to run away to Uganda. I want to go. And, he, and we had like a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Uh, business, it was in the middle of the GFC. Business was tough. And he just said, you've got to go. And I said, I can't go to Uganda. We've got a one-year-old, four-year-old. The business is in the poop. You know, I've got horrible business partners, blah, blah, blah. He said, you are a pain in the B. You need to go. Anyway, four days later, I had applied, got interviewed, went, and that really started my next phase of my life. And that phase began my phase of really being, understanding how blessed I am. Because as much as I am articulate, educated, got great parents, had a great education, if I'd been born anywhere else, you know, if I'd been born in Uganda, Malawi, India, China, you know, any number of other places, I would definitely not be in the position that I am today. And so that really started my next journey of, oh, and the other thing I realised is I nearly died when I had my second child. I was um, 40. And what I realised that if I hadn't had that child anywhere else, I would be dead. So in a way from that time, I was 45 when I went there, um, I, I take each day as a blessing to be alive in many ways because I would have been dead. And so from that time, and that was 2012, I've really taken my approach to life is that it is short, um, it is precious, and I won't be obligated and I won't be dutiful. That doesn't mean I'm you know, irresponsible, but I will make decisions that are going to lead me to happiness and joy and fulfilment and passion, not out of fear, not out of scarcity, and not because somebody else tells me to do it. Gee, you know, Christine, sitting here listening to you, there's just so much. I've got so many questions racing through my mind uh, because you have been so generous in sharing so much of your own vulnerability, and I really appreciate that. It's an interesting trait, the notion of vulnerability, because it appears to be a trait that is common in really successful entrepreneurs, people who are prepared to take serious risks in so many aspects of, of their being, uh, not just in their in their professional uh, life. I want to take move to to this to the hunger project for a moment. Considering you pick that up, and you've mentioned there, it's kind of life changing impact that it had on you uh, when you had that opportunity to go over there. And of course, that story you just shared about your, your the challenge of your pregnancy, uh, and and should have that occurred in any other country, you might not be here to be having this conversation with us, mm -hmm. which is which is quite profound, isn't it? It's very profound, mm -hmm. and considering that uh, modern medicine is such an uh, in an advanced state, it's a shame that there are nations around the world that don't get the privilege of that as we do here in glorious Australia. I'm interested though about this experience in Africa, not just the impact it had on you personally, which you've just shared, but more so how it now impacts the way you lead and work. Hunger Project has 10 principles, and obviously I'm on the board, but I can't always remember all of them. But <laughs> the ones that I do remember, are the ones that most resonate to me are gender equality and general equality, education and empowerment and enablement, self-reliance and leverage. And then as a business owner, as a, and a, especially as a Chinese business owner, I want return on my investment. You know, I want to know that I, when I'm spending money, when I'm giving you my money, when I'm giving you my time, when I'm giving you my creativity and my intellect, I want to, I want to see a return on that investment, right? I'm not doing it just to feel good. And I, but however, I do feel good about what I do, right? I'm very proud of what I do. But I'm not doing it for that. 
I'm doing it because I want to make change. I want to make impact. I want to make a difference. And I want people to have the right to eat once a day, right? And I'm not talking about lobster. I'm talking about millet. I want women not to have to walk 20 kilometres to have a baby with a two-year-old and another baby on their arm. I want girls around the world to be able to go to school. And so when I support anything, and I'm you know, very supportive of the Hunger Project, I want to see impact. And that's what I do now. And that's why I am such a big supporter of, of the organisation. What does your two sons think of mum and her passion and this very altruistic perspective of living? So my older one was four when I first left, um, when I went to Uganda, my little one was, you know, one or something like that, right? So for the older one, I'll be honest, he's 16, he's a teenager, he doesn't really care. <laughs> or he doesn't say. I think he's very aware. They're aware that I um, spend a lot of time with the Hunger Project. They're, they're aware of what I do. My little one is very much on the journey with me. So he, you know, he was like two years ago, he did a fundraiser with his friends. You know, they raised $2,500. Um, I got him to walk down. I said, if you want to do it, that's fine. I'll support you. But, you know, he's the one that walked down Centre Road in Bentley. He asked all the shopkeepers for donations. We got sausages and bread rolls and salads and all sorts of things. He went out to his friends and he did it. And I think my, my kids very much know, I think the benefit of, to my children is they understand that they're in a world bigger than just McKinnon in Melbourne. They um, understand that education is a privilege. They understand that, you know, they are very lucky in this world and they understand the concept of sharing and giving. It's also very clear sitting here listening to you that you are a huge advocate, of course, for women. Yeah. And not, not, not only women in, in our country, but women in circumstances that no one should ever find themselves in uh, yeah. across the globe. I suppose that, that now leads to a bit of a follow-up and it leads to, to this notion of a future builder. How can we better cultivate the notion of a future builder in our schools today about this issue relating particularly around gender equity? So funny. I've just written, I've just done an a interview yesterday around diversity, inclusion and equality and I've just written a whole new module and program on diversity and inclusion, and I see that there's two, two roles, two lenses. One is the role of the diverse themselves. So what are we, as diverse as minorities, as, as you know, the downtrodden, what are we doing to both contribute to our own situation and or to get ourselves out of that situation? And the second part is, you know, what are the gatekeepers of diversity and quality doing to actually open the doors? And unfortunately, I read a, um, a, an article over the, well, a couple of weeks ago saying that although 96% of people in organisations believe that they should do something around diversity and inclusion, 56% admitted that they do nothing because there's nothing in it for them. And if you go the next step, right, not only is there nothing in it for them, for many of the gatekeepers to make change, actually it's going to disadvantage them because all of a sudden an Asian woman or a... Indian man or a, you know, gay person with one eye might get the job that they're not going to get, the, you know, they're not going to get that job. So, you know, 
I guess where I look at what I like to do is an empower the individual. So my focus really is on working with the diverse themselves and the, the diverse or the difference are, you know, all sorts of different people, but really getting them to step up and make the change. And I suppose I, I do coach a lot of women and I get told, oh, I can't because I'm a mother. I can't because I'm not educated. I can't because it's a boys club. I can't. And so, you know, I'm very challengingly will always say, well, I have more disabilities than you. You could see people go, what? what? And I'm like, well, you're a woman, but I'm an Asian woman. Mm. And, you know, you're a woman and, and I'm shorter than you. So there's a whole thing about taller people are more powerful than shorter people. I'm not blonde. Right? There's, a lookism, there's a thing called lookism, right? So people that have a certain look, I don't have that look. So, you know, the minute I get told by people that what's limiting them is their gender, their age, their nationality, I'm very quick to challenge that. In my part, in my younger years, I would have said something like, oh, I never felt it. The reality is now that I reflect, I think I did suffer from discrimination and those sort of things. But the reality with me, again, I think that going back to I was too stupid to know that I couldn't do it. I was just, I would just push and I would just I don't understand it. I would push and I would push until I got to where I wanted to. Sometimes I pushed too hard. I didn't always make friends. But, you know, I've learned that. I've learned to step that back a little bit too. So, yeah, I just think for me it's about educating, empowering the diverse themselves to take control and to move themselves forward and not be downtrodden and not allow themselves to be a victim. So what I'm hearing you say here, Christine, is that it's not about a culture of complaint or a culture of grievance. It's about a way to help people to move forward based on what they can do and who they can become. Correct. Christine, I really like a lot of the thinking that sits behind what you're doing at, at People Coach. It's technology enabled, it's human driven. There's a platform approach, which means that you can bring benefits that would usually only be available to those who can afford intensive one-on-one -on -one coaching to mm -hmm. a whole range of people. Tell us about that journey of building People Coach and what you're doing with the program and the business today. I started to do executive coaching pretty much after I got back from Uganda. So I start because I wanted I, where I wanted to work in is the area of self-belief, self-enablement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I started to build that business and was doing very, very well. But the issue was two things. One, I could only deal with the most senior people in organisations because who else is going to pay ten or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars for a, a coach? And not only were they only the senior executives, they were generally men because who were the senior executives? Generally men. The other thing is that I wanted to scale and dare I um, drop a name, but when I was in the pool on Richard Branson's island with Jane uh, <laughs> Whirlwind from Dermalogica, what I realised was that I was thinking too small around how I was delivering my expertise, my passion, my my skills by making it all one on one. So, Christine, was that was that on the did you say when you were in the pool? Because I've seen some footage of you dancing on the tables with uh, Sir Richard Branson. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was definitely. I was on the bar with Richard Branson. I was on the boat with Richard Branson. Um, I did actually even ask him. Do you think he'd pass his own psych test or pass a psych test to be employed? And he went, absolutely not. Um, so, uh, yeah, so what I realised that I had two these two things. One was why am I only working with men? 
because that's you know if we really want talent pipelining if we really want equality giving more resources to the most senior executives to get them higher up in their career is not going to cut it and secondly how do i get scale so the question for me was how do i deliver what i deliver in a cost and time effective way to ensure and so our mission is that every person has equal opportunity and equal access to an executive executive coach when they need one to accelerate both the, themselves but also their businesses um, and so that's where i came up with people coach and so today as you said we work with AMP, the Trobe City Council, Honeywell, Rockwell, um, and I'm really proud to say that 57% of the people on our platform um, are women. Wow. Which is unheard of. If you go and ask any organisation how many of their women are being coached versus men, I question whether it's even double digits. That's fantastic. over 50%. That's fantastic, Christine. I want to. I'm, I'm going to try and steer our conversation towards education at this point because a lot of mm -hmm. what you're talking about and a lot of what you are living in both your own professional life and your personal life and in the businesses that you've been running and in the business that you have now is a very model of the type of enterprise skills, the type of entrepreneurship, the type of future building we want now we, we've, we've talked about future building we've, we've done a bunch of research over the last decade with schools uh, all over the world uh, we've come up with a set of six graduate outcomes that we think people should be connected with good people continuous learners and unlearners solution architects responsible citizens team creators but this one future builder is the one that we wanted to focus on with you a person who is a future builder can translate vision into a shared story of progress. And we've heard about you doing that with your family and with your business already. They're great communicators. They've got a long-term focus on vision rather than just short-term things. They've got the capacity to direct, to motivate, to influence and inspire others towards a shared goal. In this sort of light, what do you think might be the purpose of schooling in today's world? So I believe all education and all schooling is there, the whole purpose is so that people can be self-sufficient in their futures, whatever that may be, right? So self-sufficient emotionally, self-sufficient financially, self-sufficient in finding purpose in their career or their profession. And why I say that is if you are not, so my whole focus is around career, right? So it's, it's, that's, and helping people find the careers that they love. But when you do that, right, not only are you, can you be more successful in your career, but at, your mental health is better, your personal life is better, your financial health is better. Because when you love what you do, when you're good at what you do, when, you know, people need what you do um, and they pay you for it, you get something back for it, but also you're adding a lot of value. So, you know, for me, it's not about necessarily, and so when I talk about that, I don't mean education is there to get people a, a degree, as a, a medical degree to earn lots of money. What I'm saying is the education process, including parenting, should be around how to help our children and our people to find what they're passionate about and what they're good at so that they can thrive in their career and in their life. You're, you're also a member of the uh, the Future Minds Advisory Council, which is chaired by David Gonski, which would be very yeah. familiar to so many of our listeners. And, and the Future Minds program aims to prepare school-age learners in, in, in Australia for this kind of digital future, uh, helping fast-track the development of skills such as uh, critical thinking, problem-solving, automation, 
systems design and data analytics. Why is this work important to you? When I was asked to join the Future Minds collab, I was very proud and very surprised actually, especially when I saw the list of the other people on the on the advisory council, you know, most incredible educators and academics, people in government, you know, a whole lot of different incredible people. And I literally, when I was interviewed, I went, uh, yeah, sure. I'm sitting on a board with David Gonski. Yep, sign me up. But uh, I'm not quite sure what I can add. And what I've realised that my role there is to take the the role and the advocate for the scared person inside. So students can have, and I see it in my own children, right? Highly intelligent, well, I like to say so, every mother thinks so, but you know, intelligent, you know, great school, you know, have potential, but where they're letting themselves down, and I think where I see a lot of people let themselves down is not in their academic skills or their intelligence, but in their resilience in their empathy, in their self-belief, in their confidence. And so that's the role that I bring, bringing the other side of the softer skills and really like focusing in on how can I help people unblock their self-limiting beliefs, you know, their personal obstacles to actually allow them to share the expertise that they've learned at school or university or wherever they may be. Phil, uh, this is fascinating listening to this, of course, because so much of the work of Circle over the last 10 or so years has been centred around exactly what Christine has just spoken about, and that is fundamentally their character formation and their character competency and their emotional competency. I'm just wondering if you wanted to explore that a little bit further with her. Yeah, well, thanks, Adriana. I mean, I think at the same time, too, that, uh, that a lot of what you're talking about there, Christine, is about, is about self-determination. It's about giving people the... the the character and the courage to make decisions about their life, which are based on a, a sense of what their purpose is. I mean, we call that the pathway to excellence in the research work that we have done. What are you seeing through this work on the Future Minds Advisory Council and People Coach and all the other things that you're doing? What are you seeing in terms of a shift in education towards, shall we say, a shift away from the stuff of education uh, that sort of fills days with good intentions, but is just clutter and more towards the notion of helping people to find their purpose. Like, I'll be honest, a lot of the work that I've seen in the Future Minds Lab is about more around scale and equality and access and using technology to support learning. Uh, and honestly, COVID has brought out even more so mm-hmm you know, the inequities that, that, that we suffer in Australia and globally. So, been so, a couple- so, Christine, that's a very pragmatic thing, though, isn't it? Because it's all good and well asking people to go and find their purpose and find their passion. But if we can't scale it and we can't enable anybody to be able to do it, then we're just whistling in the wind, aren't we? That's right. That's right. So, look, I guess... You know, there are times that I feel I'm very excited about all the accelerators that we're working with in the Future Minds Lab and I can see the purpose that they've got and, you know, there's people that are looking after the mental health of children and, you know, career health and all sorts of different things. But at the same time, you know, the practical person of me is like, oh, my God, but we can't get the basics right. And until we get parents supporting children wanting to learn at home and parents not saying to children, 
you know, don't be stupid. You have to be a doctor, otherwise you're not going to survive or not even a doctor or you just have to quit school and get a job or why should I let you use my computer because I want to watch whatever. You know, like until we stop that stuff, the kids have got no hope in a way. Like it's very hard because although teachers spend, you know, six hours a day, five days a week with children, parents spend the other 18 hours a day with them. And, you know, so I guess I, I get sad about that which is a bigger issue than just you know than what we're talking about today but I do believe the role of parents that we need to step up to teach our people our children more around resilience and empathy and care and um, self-confidence because we're the ones that can make it or break it. So in other words there's a whole field here about community engagement so we, we, we can't just educate the child and educate them narrowly that we have to look at you know the whole of learning but then we have to look at the whole of life that supports the whole of learning, you know? So it's, I can understand why you'd look at something like that and be quite daunted around that because it, you know, where do you start? Well, you know, it's like eating an elephant. Where do you start? You start with a bit in front of you and you see how that tastes and then you see whether you've got success and you, you know, you kind of move that on from there. What's something that you've tried in your work that you wouldn't do again and why? Partnering with somebody to make a lot of money just to make a lot of money. Yeah, you have to explain why. Have you watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Not, not only watched it, but also read it to my children when they were growing up, and I had it read to me when I was growing up too. So, so you know the part where Charlie's about to give up his, silver, his golden ticket for money because they needed the money, and Grandpa Joe says, why would you give something up that's so precious because there's only five in the world for something as common as money? Mm. And I guess... You know, my, if you want to talk about what I'm scared of, um, what I was scared of, it was always about money. Will I have enough? It was a a scarcity mindset. It was, you know, because I was was brought up, if you don't work, you don't eat. Don't work, don't eat. So it was literally, I have to work, I have to work, I have to work. I've got to eat, I've got to eat, I've got to eat, you know. Um, And I start, I, I merged this business ultimately because I didn't, necessarily love what I was doing but also because I saw like he had, the, the person that approached me had this real plan around how to scale it and we we're going to do this and we we're going to do this and we we're going to sell out and we we're going to blah 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 right and I was like cool we do this by you know whatever date I'll be able to sell it I'll be able to walk away with x amount and then I'll be able to do what I love to do or want to do and they were the three most miserable uh, years of my life and they were the, that was what drove me to Uganda. So although I was miserable by it, actually had a really good, like it got me so down that I actually had to run away to Africa to, to fix myself up. So, so I guess now um, I'm in the process with people coach of getting investors. I'm in the process of, you know, doing capital raise. And I spoke to one person the other day and he was talking to me about, you know, what's important. And I went, shared values, shared plan, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I, you know, I, I, I actually love everyone I work with at the moment. So I want to love them. And he's like, oh, I think it's really important to like people. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm like, I, went, I said, yeah, you're right, right, like. And then I went, no, actually, I love them. I literally love my team. I love my coaches. I love my accountant. I love, you know, and so that's going to be my thing. Like, I'm not going to do it just, I'm not going to partner with someone just because you can give me money or I'm going to make more money. I'm going to do it because we're aligned and I like you and I, I can see a potential of loving you and then we're going to do amazing things together. So for our listeners out there, 
what you're presenting us right now is an image of entrepreneurship, which goes against the crude stereotype that it's all about money, 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 money. It's not. It's about people. It's about purpose. It's about your sense of self and the way in which you connect with others to build something together and enjoy what it is that you're doing. Is this what the future of the world of work is, is going to be like? Look, I don't know. And I don't know whether my approach is right. I mean, dare I put the gender card out there. I have been speaking to VCs about funding and the stats are women get 3% of, of funding and try adding 50 plus year old Chinese woman. There ain't much interest out there. So instead of being sad and sulky about that, I do call it out, but then I go out and I, I do it myself. The interesting thing out of that actually though is a couple of things. First thing is I have got a number of investors. They're all men, which is interesting, but all of them absolutely believe in our purpose of what we're doing. And they're all guys that are very supportive of what we're doing and the change that we're making in the world. So am I slower? Is it slower? Am I not, you know, I don't know, is Blackbird or Airtree going to come and give me $5 million? They bloody well should. I don't know if they will, but I will get there somehow anyway. And it might be slower than the other entrepreneur next to me. The 30-year-old white male entrepreneur next to me might get the five million before I do, but, you know, can't be bitter about these things. Well, I can be a little bit, but I'll just say it. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, uh, on your website, uh, you have stated, and I'll quote, at my heart, I am an adventurer, seeking out opportunities to learn and to share my story, presenting on career, leadership, women empowerment, startups, and fulfilling your dreams. I love that, by the way, Christine, because there's so much optimism in what that single quote actually says about um, the future, but also about how you're going to craft that future. So my most logical question as we get to the conclusion of this conversation today is, what's then going to be the next challenge for you? Oh, I already know. But I can't tell you because <laughs> then it might not come true. It's like a birthday cake. So I know that where I am now is about impact. And it is about equity and it is about making, you know, sharing my voice and my networks and my money and my whatever I can give to make sure that when I go, that I can feel proud of the legacy that I've left, which is not necessarily a building with a plaque on it, but is something that I can, I can be proud that I've made change. And if I think about the hunger pro back to the hunger project and if I think about the coaching work that I do you know I make impact every single day every day one coaching session one person getting an insight and one person going to ask their boss for something they never would have done is changing somebody's life you know one donation that I can one extra donation I can get to the hunger project one extra dollar that I can give to the hunger project you know, the multiplier of the impact of that is significant. We are literally changing people's lives with every dollar. And so that's the change that I want to make. I don't care if I'm remembered. I don't care if, you know, people remember my name or not. Um, that's what I, what I need to do. And also with my boys, you know, I've got two men that I am crafting, that I am moulding, that I am impacting, that I am damaging. Um, and I want them to be the best men that they can be in a world that should be equal. 
Christine Corr, it's just been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you today. I'm hearing a story of excellence and of equity that's being created by equipping people with the right approach and the right character and the right competencies, empowering people to find the thing inside them that really matters so that they can get it outside and enabling the journey along the way by good decision making. I'm also hearing somebody with a wicked sense of humour <laughs> who's uh, not afraid to have a good time in the process. And, and that's what one of my colleagues would call the power of enjoyment along the way. So there are lots and lots of E's in there. Trust a teacher to come up with lots of, you know, seven E's um, <laughs> along the way. Um, we're blessed to have you as part of our Game Changers. Uh, it's been uh, a terrific education for us in thinking through the way in which entrepreneurship in your field and in your experience might work and in particularly in building the future of entrepreneurship, a future which has a social purpose and which has uh, a profound sense of self-fulfillment, self-determination along the way. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Can I just add one thing? Sure. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, so I want to do a pitch. So if there's any educators out there that need support, I know that you're going through a lot. I work with businesses and I can see the ups and downs of working through COVID. Uh, if you do want to find out more about our programs, we are very cost effective. We're accessible to all. Please email me at chris at peoplecoach.com. Um, I am obviously offering discounts to the education department and, and teachers and educators. I do know that we can help people manage through this and coaching works. So if you need anything, peoplecoach.com or email me directly. Sorry for that pitch, but you know, I'm an entrepreneur I I, and I know we do good work. <laughs> I, don't I don't think you should apologise for it all. You just did, yeah, we were going to do a plug for you anyway, so you just did it better than we could possibly do, Christine. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much, Christine. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.